1: His bestsellers include The Tipping Point, Outliers, and Talking to Strangers. He's also a podcaster. He hosts the hit podcast, Revisionist History. And he's a very popular speaker every year at OzzyFest, Fest, the festival of ideas that Carlos and his colleagues put on every
3: summer.
4: Malcolm, welcome to the show. I uh, I smile every time I see you, although it's been a long time since I've seen you, given COVID. Yes. Normally, we would be in the New York uh, summer heat around right now. We'd be at Aussie Fest.
3: I know. It's so sad.
4: Where are you uh,
3: quarantining uh, during this uh, this interesting time? I'm in upstate New York, about two hours north of the city, in the Hudson Valley. I was going to ask
4: you, happily or are you stir-crazy at this point?
3: No, I'm I'm managing. I'm, I'm you know, I think I'm doing... I've been busy, so I kept myself from being going too crazy. I love that. And 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 are you, are
4: you writing more these days? Are you recording more these days? Given all that you're doing in the podcast world, how are you spending the bulk of your time these days?
3: Well, I've just finished my, just today I recorded the last episode of um, this season of revisionist history. So I have been this whole time I've been occupied with getting this season out the door. Um, so it's, uh, uh, and now i am be working on another audiobook project for the rest of the summer. And, and what's your
4: favorite these days? Because you're probably a rare public intellectual who's had a chance to work both as a reporter, uh, to actually author really interesting books, to do a lot of public speaking, and now it feels like you've really embraced the audio form. Do you have a favorite uh, uh, form of storytelling and, and, and sharing these days?
3: Well, I started a company with uh, one of my best friends. And it's an audio company. We make audiobooks and podcasts. And so that's really where my heart is at the moment. Um, and I'm, I'm constantly surprised how different storytelling is in the audio form. And so um, I'm, it's, it feels like a fresh start. It feels like at my grand old age, I am um, starting a whole new career. So it's been very exciting.
4: And, and what is different about that? Um, and, and, and not just different, but obviously compelling compelling enough for you not just to do it as an individual but to build a whole company uh, by the way with a great name pushkin uh,
3: around it thank you um well it's just so Im- much more emotional and more intimate um, i feel like you you know this with print there's always a kind of certain layer between you and your audience and with now with audiobooks and podcasts i'm inside your ear you know it's like can't get any more intimate than that. And that just allows you to tell different kinds of stories in different ways. And,
4: and what brought you to audio? I mean, I assume you had done lots of radio interviews over the years, but was there a, a uh, to purposefully use the phrase, was there a tipping point in terms of uh, your move into audio?
3: My friend Jacob, who had been doing, running an audio company, um, and he was the one who five years ago asked me if I wanted to do a podcast. And I at the time he asked me, I thought of it as being a, like a lark that it would be two months of the year, and I probably would only do it once. But I just found it so fun um, that I haven't looked back. And now it takes up. And also, I was wrong. You couldn't. You can't do a lark, and it doesn't take six months. It takes It doesn't take two months. It takes six months or even longer. Um, I loved working with a team for the first time. I, you know, I had, riders are pretty solitary, but you can't make a podcast by yourself. So all of a sudden I'm working with a team, which I really enjoy. And um, I enjoy how a different side of my personality comes out in audio. I mean, I think I'm much more my kind of I'm, you know, I think I seem very serious on the page. I'm not actually a serious person. I'm um, I'm much more kind of mischievous and um, whimsical and that, I feel like my true self surfaces far more often in podcasts. So that makes it, you know, be a little more meaningful. And and what are you like as
4: a uh, entrepreneur and business person? Because I assume that's also a little new in some ways. What
3: is, uh, yeah. uh, what is, what is. Well, I'm not as good as you, Carlos. <laughs> I, I, I leave all of that. Luckily, Jacob, my co-founder is um, someone with enormous business gifts. I don't really have any business gifts. Um, I'm a bad manager. I, you know, I, I, no, no one's putting me in charge of any crucial aspect of this fledging organization. I'm basically arm candy for when we want to go out and try and convince people to join us. And I make stuff, um, but trust me, Jacob is doing 85% of the meaningful work in making a company and no one in their right mind would enlist me for that task. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, you don't build a company around uh, on the back of Malcolm Godwell. That's the, you know, there are better people around for that.
4: I, I actually love that. I think that's going to be your new nom de guerre, Arm Candy. I like that. That's uh, that's uh, that that'll become uh, that'll become your your new piece.
3: I'm flattering myself when I when I when I refer to myself as Arm Candy.
4: Trust me. I, I love. It. Well, actually, but, but how do you think of yourself? And I, I don't mean that in an overly kind of Woody Allen, kind of self-focused way, but just out of curiosity, if you were introducing Malcolm Gladwell at Aussie Fest, you would say Malcolm Gladwell is what, does what? What would you say?
3: Well, I'm a journalist who likes to explain things to people. Um, I think that's probably the simplest way. I like to tell stories and explain things. Um, I don't think I'm a, you know, I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, I tend to report on other people's findings, not... I'm not doing the research myself. Um, I'm an intermediary between um, serious thinkers and the public. And I throw in my own little mix, but I'm, um, I've am i always been an interpreter, not a, a, a go-between. Um, and I think that's, I should take that role very seriously. I think that's a very valuable role in society, particularly when the gap between um scholars and experts and the general public is grows strikes me grows wider every day and so the the kinds of people who can try and bridge that gap i've play an important role and i just think of myself as being one of those people
4: and and so who are the others in your space that you admire whether present or past as, as you think about the importance of that role
3: who do you admire or, or even just enjoy well michael lewis would be the classic example of someone who I think has been working that same way. He tends to, he focuses on different areas, but he has, you know, he's written, he wrote a book about, um, you know, derivatives. You know, the most obscure and complex financial instrument that lay at the heart of the financial crisis. He wrote a book that was turned into an Oscar winning movie. You know, that's that's serious, some serious interpretation going on there. Um, but I think, you know, the list is actually quite long. I feel like journalism of the last 20 years, this has really been a flourishing, not journalism, um, public book publishing. This has been a flourishing genre within book publishing of people doing what I do, which is, you know, I'm part of this group of people who were just, we're really, you know, we're glorified science, what they used to call science writers. Um, people who knew enough about science to be able to ask smart questions. And who could turn those, turn that knowledge into something that was useful to people without specialized access or education? Uh, Malcolm, take me way back. What was young Malcolm
4: like? If I had bumped into young Malcolm at eight, nine, ten, like who would I have met? Would he have had the same great hair? Would he have had the same kind of a uh, uh, whimsical nature? Who would I have? Who would I have met? And where? And where would I have met him? By the way,
3: a lot of hair. I would have been. You would have met me in rural Ontario, about an hour and a half outside Toronto. Um, I was a little uh, skinny uh, kid uh, who spent most of his time um, reading books, history books, other things, um, playing war games, uh, uh, running around. I was just a couple years later, I started to become a very serious runner. If you'd met me at fourteen, I would have told you I was a runner. I, I would have identified wholly with my status as an athlete, um, but uh, not a very—you um, know—I grew up in a in quite a secluded, quiet uh, part of the world. Not a a long way from any kind of big city sophistication. Um, I was a pretty nerdy kid. Um, didn't have a television at home, didn't really know much about pop culture, didn't participate in any of the kind of, um, act- sort of typical activities of someone that age. I, I was, we, we lived in a, in a little kind of a um, uh, little kind of farming community that was, it's like a little bubble, you know? I And by the way, I enjoyed every minute of it. I'm not dissing it, I'm, I loved it and I would, I would I would wish it on anyone, um, but uh, I was not I wasn't one of those jaded New York City kids. And 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 who were your parents? I, I could, again, set the
4: scene a little bit for us. So we're in rural Ontario. Uh, lots of books, no television. So that is clearly a signifier there. Who are, who were who were the parents in this
3: house? My dad is a, was a, um, a mathematician at the local university. Um, Englishman, big beard. Love dogs, you know, gardening, uh, long walks. Didn't say a lot. Um, my mom is Jamaican. Uh, she was a writer and then she was a, a psychotherapist um, uh, who had a, uh, a a local family family therapy practice in town. Um, both very religious, uh, and um, uh, I had a kind of I love my you know I did I had. I had a very untroubled um, adolescence and childhood, and a very untroubled relationship with my parents. I, I, my, I, even if I were not their child, I would have been their friend. They would, they were just people who, um, they were just kind of. Particularly, my dad was a very kind of quirky, eccentric, just delightful um, human being. I mean, he died a couple years ago, but. Uh, uh, and my mom is just is still going strong, and is a she's one of those indomitable Jamaican ladies. Um, I feel like if a nuclear bomb dropped in the world, the only people who would survive would be Jamaican ladies, and uh, they, <laughs> they would they would single-handedly resurrect civilization. I, I don't think kind of impossible to to defeat them to you know to discourage them to stop them in any way they're that's my mom like she slow and steady has won the race not wins the race has won the race <laughs> so I,
4: I i love hearing you say that you know i come from similar stock and so i have a deep appreciation for for what you're saying on uh, on many many levels uh, uh, how did how did you end up malcolm becoming a journalist in other words would you've also told me that at 14 that you were on a path towards journalism, or did that come along later in the story?
3: No, I was came to journalism by chance. I uh, was planning to go first to law school, then I was going to go to business school, and then I decided before I went to business school I would go into advertising, but I couldn't get a job, and then I, by sheerest chance, got a job at some obscure little magazine in the States, moved down here, and just stayed. I never ended up, I would apply to business schools, just never went. I just kept on deferring. Um, And, you know, freelance for a while, live in Washington, D.C., work for the Washington Post, moved to New York, got a job at The New Yorker. Um, It's been a very, I never planned any of it. It's been a totally serendipitous journey. If you had gone to business school, what would have become of you, do you think? I sort of think I could have, I don't know whether I would have been good at anything I did. In fact, I'm sure I wouldn't have been. But I think I would have enjoyed whatever I did. I'm just someone who enjoys. Uh, I mean, I I could if I got a job in advertising, I would have gone into advertising, and I would have really had a lot of fun. I think um, I would have loved to. I have the secret desire to have been a developer. I, I think the idea of being building buildings is like insanely interesting and cool, and I'm sure. I would really have enjoyed it if I'd gone into real estate development. You know, I, I mean, who knows? I mean, I God, I there's a long list of things I think I could have really had fun doing. Um, I don't think of myself as being someone who could only have been a writer. Interesting.
4: So you could have easily crossed paths with Trump, is what you're saying.
3: I could have, you know, gone into business with Trump in the 90s in New York. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I think I would have run in the opposite direction from him, even at that age, uh, even at that period in his life. Um, he is not, you know, the world I grew up in was a world which was, which prided humility and, um, uh, uh, soft-spokenness and, uh, restraint. So it's unlikely I would have ended up with Donald Trump.
4: It's very interesting. Have you ever met, uh, uh, Trump before?
3: No, no, not on my list of. Interesting people I'd like to run across. No, not, not, not to go there. Talk to me about your tipping point
4: moment. When did you, you know, there are still plenty of journalists around, and there are probably lots of people who you ran with, but you really entered into a very special place, both in America and the world, in terms of a very public thinker as well. And and as you said, someone who's, who's, who's had the opportunity to share ideas, kind of very big ideas that, that change the way people think. What was your tipping point?
3: That's a hard uh, question to answer. I mean, it was probably, uh, I mean, I had a sort of series of things. One was the book, The Tipping Point, which was, you know, I was a New Yorker writer before that, but I wasn't terribly well-known. And that book sold very well, to my surprise, as well as everyone else's surprise. Uh, and I kind of like became, I suppose I became well-known after that book. Um, uh So that was, it was my tipping point was probably the tipping point. Um, Although, you know, I can also point to a whole series. I always think of success as being, um, it's not one thing. It's a chain of things. You know, it's like five or six or seven different things that largely happen to you, not that you make happen. I kind of feel like it's, and I feel I had about six or seven things in a row, getting a job at at the Washington Post having some really wonderful people teach me how to be a reporter, getting a job with the New Yorker. Um, you know, that was another big kind of moment. So it was sort of but I suppose the biggest break I got was this sort of bizarre, inexplicable success of my first book. And that kind of put me on the on the road to where I am today.
4: And, and so, why did Tipping Point do so well? Do you think, again, as someone who's like a student of of, of what makes things go, why do you think t- the Tipping Point, the book, did so well?
3: Don't really know. I mean, I I had I wrote it because I had been covering the AIDS epidemic for the Washington Post, and I was obsessed with epidemics, and. Uh, I wanted to write a book which applied the logic of epidemics to other things, to ideas, to people's behavior. And I think for whatever reason, I think that for, that book came out in 1999 or 2000, at a time when I think people were, like we are now, still very much obsessed with the idea of the epidemic. I mean, we forget now because we're in the middle of COVID, but, you know, HIV was for people of my generation, was a defining phenomenon. I mean, it was, it was this desperate, um, haunting, unforgettable, tragic, scary thing. And it really kind of forcibly introduced us to the notion of what a contagious epidemic could do to a society. And um, so on the heels of that, along comes a book which takes that idea and applies it in different areas. And I just think, I don't know, I just think it was just a, it just happened to come along at exactly the moment that people were interested in that metaphor and exploring it. So it was, you know, it's luck. I, I wasn't, I didn't have that all worked out in my head. I just was personally interested in epidemics and, um, and lo and behold, so was, so was the rest of the world in that moment. And, and what should have been
4: the big takeaway? What, what did you want people to take away from that? I can assume, and I know what I took away, but but what did you, as someone who labored to bring that to life, what did you want us to take away from that?
3: Well, a bunch of things. I wanted people to, ref- I mean, in retrospect, what do I think is the most important message? That that book was, a lot of that book was about social power. Um, it wasn't about the kind of power that resides in, political office or resides in um, economic might. Um, it was the kind of about the kind of power that resides in people's personalities and relationships. And I think that was um, that was really what I was getting at in that book was that, you know, I was writing about there's a lot of profiles of people who I considered powerful in that book, but they weren't conventionally powerful. They were powerful by virtue of the kind of trust and, and um, the kind of uh, rapport and the kind of relationships they had with the people around them. And, um, you know, I think subsequently we've become quite interested in social power. It's really what the internet is about, right? Um, but at the time, I think that was something, at least for me, was a kind of novel notion that I had always thought about power in very traditional terms. And, you know, the... Um, and all of a sudden, I was interested in exploring this different dimension. Um, you know, in the context of the of the AIDS epidemic, you know, the big point I was making about epidemics is they're asymmetrical. Certain people um, do most of the work. Um, it's true with COVID as well, and they those people are powerful. I mean, in a negative sense, they're spreading the virus, but it's not any kind of power that we normally think about. And that's what I was trying to get at with with Tipping Point.
2: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of
1: in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800 333 kia for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
2: Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
4: podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
2: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it.
4: i never seen a man How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple
3: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Malcolm, I'm intrigued about what has, has driven you to write the books you've written. Um, will you take us through that? Uh, what, what led you to write Blink? What led you to write some of the other books?
3: Yeah, there's a different. It's always some little trivial thing that sets me off. You know, with Blink, I decided in the late 90s, early you know, early aughts, I had worn my hair really short, and I, I had a full-on afro for a while, like a really big one. And I started to get stopped by cops that stopped it airports stopped it and I just realized all of a sudden I was much more identifiably um, a person of color I mean I'm not you know I'm pretty light-skinned but when I have a huge afro it's like oh and the whole world was treating me differently I just thought that was weird you know because I was the same person as before but all of a sudden I would literally I cannot tell you how many tickets I got in a five year span when I grew my hair. I mean, I never got tickets before. And I started getting like, random, like, tickets. And I realized this is, you know, for black men in America, this is not news. But I hadn't been treated that way till that moment. I had my hair all short and tidy. And then like, boom. And I just thought, that just sort of made me realize, I just thought that I thought you'd oh, be really interested to write a book about the power of first impressions. By power, I don't mean how good they are. I mean how consequential they are. Um, so that was that. And then David and Goliath was a book. Oh, I'm sorry, Outliers came next. And that was a book because I literally was at a fancy dinner party in Manhattan and sitting next to some Rich white guy who grew up, who's you know, grew up on the upper east side in some fancy apartment, whose father was an investment banker, and he was making this argument about that how he was a self-made man, like he that it was his success was all due to his own hard work and intelligence, which was so self-evidently nonsense that I just thought you know, let's write a book about how the myth of the self-made man is, um, it's just. Is an, is, 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 an, is, a, is an illusion, you know, that try to try and puncture that particular um, uh, myth in American society. So that's where that one came. And that sort of led me down all kinds of interesting pathways. Um, David Goliath was um, a kind of follow-up on Outliers because I just got fascinated by, I met a, I started meeting all these very successful entrepreneurs who were dyslexic And when you ask them about it, they would always say that they thought they were successful, not in spite of their dyslexia, but because of it, which I just thought was such a fascinating observation. And David and Glad is basically an examination of that idea. How is it possible that something that seems like a disability could prove to be an advantage? Um, And then my last book, Talking to Strangers, is just about me watching that Sandra Bland video over and over again and getting angry um, at seeing the the tragedy and the stupidity and the absurdity of a young black woman being pulled out of her car for nothing and then ending up dead in her cell two days later um so they're always they always start with some little precipitating incident in my life which makes me affects me in some way
4: I, I so love that Malcolm, and I so appreciate the backstory on each of those. It's it's interesting. It is difficult, even tragic, things that motivate you in each of these five cases to do the work. Meaning, uh, it is it's the death of a young professional woman in a new city she's moved to. It's a um, it's an epidemic. Um, uh, what does that say? What does that tell you? that that, that that's the thing that is moving you to do the work that's required to write a really special book?
3: Well, a lot of those, you know, that books are often born in emotional responses. Um, I think that's the kind of key takeaway that um, in order to be motivated to spend such a large amount of time exploring a subject, um, I think you need to have something more than just intellectual response. You have to feel something, whether it's annoyance or anger or outrage or delight or something. There, there has to be an emotion. Um, you know, you spend, if you write a book, you spend years with it. And if all you have is some kind of idle curiosity, you're going to get, you're going to lose steam halfway through. Um, but if you're being fueled by something more important than that, then I think you have a shot at making a go of the book.
4: That's so interesting that you say that. I saw Steve Jobs once say in an interview, start something up entrepreneurial only if you can't stop thinking about it and only if you feel like you can do nothing else. He's like, otherwise, don't do it. And he almost said for the same reason you're saying. He was basically like, this is too hard and it will be too unpredictable. And if you don't have an emotion tied to it, some kind of unnatural emotion that you won't sustain. You certainly won't sustain when things inevitably aren't going well. That's interesting to hear you say that about books uh, About books as well. Um, uh, Malcolm, talk to me about what you have learned during, I, I guess, in particular, these last 20 years. So as you move from, if you will, a respected journalist, but still probably not well-known, to really one of the most well-known and probably best trusted uh, public intellectuals. Go back and talk to Malcolm in 1998. Like what two or three things would you tell him? What's gonna surprise him? What's gonna intrigue him? What's gonna blow his mind about what you've learned during this last kind of uh, 20 year plus period? Um,
3: What have I learned? Learned a lot about, I feel I've learned a lot about my audience, that um, each time I do something, I'm I'm always incredibly encouraged and um, um, uh, more than encouraged. Uh, I feel like the people's in, in contrary to what we right now we have we're in this moment where we've convinced ourselves that we're all jumping to judgment and hopelessly divided and superficial and ad- addicted to social media. It's, you know, all the, you've heard all those things. My experience is exactly the opposite. That each time I do something, I'm, I learn all over again just how sophisticated and patient and nuanced and curious and open-minded most people are. Um, there's a tiny majority who are not and make a lot of noise. And the mistake, I think, I made at the beginning of my career, and many people do, is in thinking that that's who matters. But in fact, most people are not like that. Most people, if you tell them a story and you tell it well, will listen to the story to the end. And if it contradicts what they believe, they will at least consider the new evidence. They won't dismiss it out of hand. That's really what I've learned, is that just I have just have enormous respect for the average Listener or reader now, um, I'm much. I guess I'm. I guess I'm saying I'm much less of a. You know, if I if I was a snob at one point in my life, maybe I was. <laughs> I'm a lot less of a snob now. You know what's interesting
4: to me, and uh, you know, you're the one person we've invited back to every Aussie Fest. So you're you're the only person that we've asked back, and and part of it I think was my own personal appreciation and admiration for you and your work. And your willingness and conversation to share, uh, which I think is hard for some people. But but the other part of it was, I was always warmly surprised by the breadth of people who were interested in you, that, that you were a little bit like what 60 Minutes was in the 70s, where 60 Minutes was for curious minds, whether that curious mind happened to have a graduate degree and be in the U.S. Senate, or whether that person happened to be a working class dental assistant, but who loved listening uh, to the BBC on a ham radio. Um, uh, uh, am I right, or uh, that you have a broader audience than some might expect, or or is your audience probably maybe more? What would I say? More New Yorker than maybe I'm I'm presupposing.
3: No, I, I think it's less New Yorker. Um, I actually I, I have thought the same thing. You know, it, it goes hand in hand with what I was saying before about how much more respect I have for readers and listeners now. Um, and that comes out of realizing that I used to think that my audience was quite narrow. Um, you know, there's a time when you're writing for, I started at the Washington Post and then I went to the New Yorker and I, you, you can fall into this mistake of thinking I'm really writing for someone who's an upper middle-class professional, highly educated 40 year old living on the upper West side of Manhattan, right? That's the trap you fall into. You think, oh, that's who they are. That's who's reading my stuff. That's who I should pitch to and then what I realized is that actually no it's not that at all it's like you know I used to go on book t- the I used to go on book tours and I would always marvel at the fact that the best audiences that I ever had on my book tour were never in the big coastal cities Be- best one of the best evenings I ever spent on a book tour was there was a blizzard on a January night in Milwaukee And I thought there's no way they're gonna do this. And my Milwaukee hosts were like, this is Milwaukee. This is not a problem for us. So I trudged through like a foot of snow to this thing. I was like, fantastic. It's like I just ran like a, you couldn't, you know, young old people, old people, white people, black people. I mean, like everything under the sun on 10 below, foot of snow out to like, just have a conversation about stuff. You know, I just, it, I, it was so, that's like, I, I'll always remember that evening, um, you know, sliding around the streets <laughs> on my way, driving myself to the, um, I just, just realized it's like, no, I don't even know who my audience is. Um, my favorite story is, I have noticed the people who give me props on the street are overwhelmingly young black guys. For, I don't know why, but that's who comes up to me in the street. And the best example was once I was running down Ocean or Avenue in Santa Monica. And there's a guy in a totally, I'm a huge car person. I love cars. A guy in this exquisite, like tricked out Porsche 911 with like the big open sunroof. And he's this young, totally buff, insanely handsome black guy. He sees me and he stands up in his seat and he goes, I love what you do, bro. <laughs> I was like, that is why I do what I do. Because it's like, I mean, this guy's like so much cooler than I am in like uh, in a hundred different ways. And he was like, I love what you do, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, talk to me a little bit about President
4: Trump's uh, election and his time in office. And what, if anything, that says to you about where we are and where we're headed. And I, And I don't ask you that with any... Uh, presuppositions. I'm just. I'm curious how you look at at, at the 45th Commander in Chief and 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 where we head to from here.
3: I mean, I don't know whether I have anything um, interesting to add. Uh, you know, it's a it's been a hard four years. He's, um, you know, the the nicest, not the nicest, the least. He's not someone who is terribly interested in governing. Um, and we're, we happen, unfortunately, to be in a moment where we need people who are. And that's the, the real tragedy. Um, even if I were, and I'm not, but if I were a very conservative person with all kinds of conserv- traditionally conservative views on society and such, I would be disappointed in him because he's been so ineffective as a leader, you know? Uh, so I don't think I'm making a partisan comment. He's just not interested in the mechanics of government. And, um, you know, the, uh, running the government of the United States is just maybe the most complicated job in the world. And to have someone who's not interested in doing that is, uh, is a real problem.
4: And, and what does it say to you that the American people elected someone who's, who's not that interested in the most complicated job in the world?
3: Well, we didn't really elect him. I mean, more people voted for his opponent. Um, but I don't think it was obvious that he was uninterested in uh, government. I mean, I, th- I, think, that's, I think people assumed that because he was a businessman, a reasonably successful businessman, that that part of the job would actually appeal to him. Um, but it didn't. I think so. I, I, don't, I don't blame. I mean, I think, I think there was an expectation he would be a very different kind of leader. And it just turns out that he he didn't live up to those expectations.
2: Hey, fam! I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robey, and we're the hosts of the Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
1: My best
2: hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it.
4: i never seen a man How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents family therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
3: podcasts.
1: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development,
4: Malcolm talk to me a little bit about Black Lives Matter and and the conversation around race that we're in right now. Not only how you see what's happening now, but where do you expect this to go?
3: Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm someone who's been writing about police violence since my second book. Blink, the final climactic chapter of my second book Blink in 2004 was an incredibly long detailed account of the shooting of Amadou Diallo. You know, one of the first not the first, by God, no, I can't believe I said that. Um, one of the very, very, one of the most famous, I suppose, best known, notorious cases of police violence in New York. Um, and then I wrote a, you know, I returned to that issue in um, in uh, Talking to Strangers. So it's been something that's been on my mind for a long time. Uh, so I guess I'm cheered by, I feel like maybe finally we're taking this issue seriously, although... Um, Never underestimate the ability of American society to trivialize um, an important conversation. You know, one thing that kind of depresses me is there are two conversations you can have about race. There is the personal conversation. Are white people and black people nice to each other? And then there's the structural conversation, which is, are the systems by which we run our society fair or are they biased? Those are separate conversations. And in this country, what we have done is we have used the first conversation, the personal conversation, uh, to get out of our obligations to have the second conversation. And we've tried to pretend that if we're nice to each other, then all of the other stuff doesn't matter. And I have the opposite position. I care less whether white people are nice to black people or vice versa. To my mind, all that matters is it the society, the fundamental structure of the society, to be fair? Voter suppression, redlining, uh, reparations, legacies of Jim Crow, uh, employment opportunity. I could go on. Those are the things that that matter. Whether or not you know some some white person uses the N word to a black person, I, I care less. Who, I, it's not important. What matters to me are these. Big, serious issues that have a uh, permanent and profound effect on the fortunes of an entire population. And for a brief window after George Floyd, I felt like we were finally having that second, more important conversation. But then, of course, I go on Twitter and I find, like, you know, interns at... Fancy magazines in New York are complaining about their bosses and trying to hide under the cloak of this, you know, racial awareness. I mean, it's like, it's like this is not the time to have that conversation. Um, that your boss isn't nice to you. There's bigger fish to fry. Um, I'm hoping we're finally ready to have that larger conversation. I remain cautiously optimistic that it's finally happening. And
4: and how would you go about doing that? It's funny, Malcolm. There are times when I wonder whether we would do well to almost summon up and create a new constitutional convention. To almost say, to your point, that systems matter and that let's talk about the fundamental rules and the fundamental systems. And almost as if you were kind of restarting or refreshing a company, right? That you would you would kind of have a foundational reset. Crazy idea? Better ways to do it? Like, how would we go about thinking about and, and truly trying to move forward on some of this systemic change that I think I hear you
3: saying is what matters. Well, there's a simpler way. You know, it's funny, I was, like you said, I've been to, I've spoken at Aussie Fest every year that you've had Aussie Fest. And the first year I went, and I've noticed it every year, but the first year I went, I was walking around backstage and I was like, why is this different? I was like, oh, it's different because an incredible number of the people working the event were black. And I've been to hundreds of these events in my life. That never happens. And I thought, why are they all black? And then it's like, oh, Carlos is black. Black people hire black people. It's just not that hard, right? Like, you wanna change the world, there's some really simple things you need to do. And that is, once you put people who think a little differently and have different priorities in positions of power, they will make different decisions. And so, you know, there's all of this like, hand-wringing about what it means or what it will take to get people who are not from the majority into impor- positions of responsibility, and is there the talent pipeline, blah, 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 blah. All I think is you're just making it too complicated. We just need to, if we change the complexion of what the um, the elite in this country looks like, then you change the power dynamics within the country, right? If Obama did more good for this country in eight years than any president I can remember, why? Not because he was a better or more brilliant person, but by virtue of the fact that he was different and had a different set of priorities as a result, that he had Michelle every night, you know, before they went to sleep, talking to him that he had children who looked different from other kids in their private school who would tell him about their experiences it just his his agenda was different by virtue of who he was and i, I just think it's the same reason why you can have all kinds of complicated arguments about police reform but y- you start by making sure that your police force reflects the community they are policing it's got to look like not because black people or Asian people or whatever are better police officers, but because they just have, like I said, different interests and priorities. And you want more. I have a friend in Hollywood who um, is a real kind of activist about changing the perception and role of women in Hollywood. She's very eloquent on this. She's like, it's not that there's something wrong with the men who run the you know, it's essentially the men who run the major studios in Hollywood. They're not bad people, but they're men. And so they're going to always prefer movies that are about them, people like them. And you want to change the system. You just have to put women in charge of some of the studios. It's not a complicated question. So it's like, I wish, before we get into some of these more complicated, longer-term stuff, let's just go through a concerted period where we just change the composition of people in positions of power. And that's a really, really, really good start. Interesting. You basically are saying Alexis
4: Ohanian, uh, co-founder of Reddit, got it right. That all the talk in the world won't matter as much as him being willing to step down as a board member of one of the most powerful digital companies, Reddit, and be replaced by an African-American. And that that more than any statement or other sort of thing you think will trigger meaningful change or could trigger meaningful change?
3: Yeah, I just think it's just the first step. I mean, I think you have to do all kinds of other things after that. But the simple fact is that as human beings, we are self-interested, right? We're interested in our, our interests and the interests of our group. And that's just a an, an unassailable fact about the way we're wired. So you want to have a system that reflects all interests. You got to have a system that in its power structure reflects all people.
4: And and so Malcolm, what do your wealthy white liberal friends who I know love you and I know read all your books, what do they say when you say this to them? Because they're the very people who have the ability to make these changes, right? They're the CEOs, they own the hedge funds. They're the people who could decide tonight that tomorrow I'm gonna meaningfully integrate my senior team my board, et cetera. I'm gonna put someone in place as Malcolm is recommending, who's immediately gonna make change. What do they say when you
3: say this to them? I think there's been a real difference in what they say today, as opposed to what they would have said five years ago. So I think there is a much greater willingness to accept this fact. Um, There's still a little bit too much whining about, you know, the talent, that phrase, the talent pipeline. which is not without foundation. Absolutely. You got to, you know, ultimately what you got to talk about is you got to talk about making sure that if you want more black dentists, you got to make sure that there are more black people applying to dentist school, which means you got to have more kids who are taking more black kids who are taking science in college, which means you got a better preparation in high school, which means, you know, we can can play that game and that's important. Um, But I think it's, uh, uh, I want to, I think that people need to kind of back off from their, um, uh, this illusion that what we've been running in this country is a meritocracy, um, you know, uh, in 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 large sense, a lot of what black people are asking uh, from the system is that it, it is as arbitrarily um, rigged in their favor as much as it's been arbitrarily rigged in favor of white people for the last 200 years, like, you know, the number of badly prepared, incompetent white people who've been hired by major institutions, it's a long list, right? Not like we've been practicing meritocracy perfectly for so long, which is why it's so irritating for people on the outside when those in power try to make that claim. It's like, are you kidding me? Like Harvard University, you know, if you look at the number, what, what are the most favored categories for admission? there's partly it's kids who do really well in their test scores, but there's a huge category of kids who get in because their parents went there or their parents gave a lot of money or they're athletes. And by athletes, we mean like sailing and, you know, fencing and all those other sports, which are set up to reward and lacrosse the kids who went to fancy private schools. Like the system, it's not rigged, but it, it was organized to benefit, to give a special benefit to a certain class of, Privileged kids, like it's not like it's some perfect meritocracy. I, the this, I people who get too precious about American meritocracy drive me crazy. It's it is a you know an insanely arbitrary system, and all I ask is that let's at least be fair in our arbitrariness.
4: (laughs) I I I love that. Let me uh, let me turn to the personal Malcolm a little bit. You mentioned that you love cars. What else do you love? What are some of your passions, hobbies? Give us a fuller picture
3: of uh, of who you are. Track and field. Obsessed with track and field. I'm a big runner. You know, where do I spend my time? What are the first three websites I read in the morning? Let's run, which is the big track and field message board. The car and driver website. Or maybe bring a trailer. Two of the car websites. And only then do I read the Washington Post or the New York Times. So I, my, um, my unhealthy obsession <laughs> with running and cars cannot be overstated. And then I'm, of course, a, a uh, massive sports fan, just endless. Uh, I have a, um, a limitless appetite for anything about basketball or, um, or uh, other sports, mostly, but mostly basketball.
4: Should we even talk about uh, the goat uh, uh, debate in basketball, or is there no debate? It's 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 Jordan, and we're done.
3: Uh, I don't know, man. I can't. Oh
4: my goodness!
3: Do it, heresy. What well, you so, you were hesitating? I mean, the league was pretty. The problem with Jordan's case is the league was pretty soft in the nineties. You look, I you you just look at. The talent pool in the NBA today is just so much deeper than it was in 1994. I mean, there's just no question about that. You could put together a team now in the NBA of non-Americans, which would beat the American team, right? That's how, that was not the case in 1994. So you've basically taken the rest of the world has now joined the NBA. So if we say LeBron is the best player in the NBA now, we're saying we're saying that he's the best basketball player in the world and we see the world he's playing against you know Nigerians like Giannis guys like Giannis weren't in the league in 1994 um, so i don't know i, I think it's at the best i can say it's it's an impossible comparison um, you are picking
4: a fight you were officially a bomb thrower you went from arm candy to bomb thrower in the course in the course of a conversation Wow!
3: You can't, Carlos. You cannot. You cannot deny. It's a different. It is the league is twice as deep today. I. It's just I, a different. I
4: completely agree with that. But I would take. I would bet all of your money, which is better than betting all of my money. I bet all of your money, that if you and I were choosing sides and I gave you a choice, there is zero percent chance that you would not choose Jordan first.
3: I. I wouldn't choose him first. I wouldn't i so here's a here's a here's a hypothetical the rules are we get to choose people in their finest year right okay that's our rule so you get them you get jordan at his peak um i'm not convinced i wouldn't take steph curry at his peak first because i've just changed the whole geometry of the game by doing that he's shooting from anywhere Like, I I felt like when I watched Steph in his whatever that year was when they were unstoppable, I watched him. I was like, you know, I've been watching basketball for 30 years. He I've never seen any one individual disrupt a game like that. He just all of a sudden the other team is just, you know, he's shooting from, you know, this from anywhere, anywhere. It's crazy. Okay. You know I love you, but you
4: are officially a mischievous provocateur. Just 1000%, you're a mischievous provocateur, and and I love Steph too. But you you are being wildly provocative, but I love it, and it means that next year at Aussie Fest, I'm going to have you moderate the sports conversation. We're going to we're going to get Steph All right, and we're going to get done. Michael, and we're going to have this conversation cuz this this is trouble, but that's it's good trouble. It's the right kind of trouble. All right, Uh, a few final questions. We'll do a little bit of a hot round here. Um, uh, Most interesting or favorite place in the world you've ever had a chance to visit?
3: Mm, Johannesburg. Because? I went, uh, I've been several times, most recently last year, uh, because the notion that you go to a a nice restaurant in Johannesburg and uh, half... If not more, the people, three-quarters of the people in the room will be black. This is one generation after apartheid? You know, it's amazing. Didn't have a revolution. Nobody got shot. Uh, my hat is off to them. That's that's Nelson Mandela, man. That is some, that is some insane magic that you can do that in one generation. A, a
4: most interesting person you've ever met. I know I love that whenever I see you... You've just come from meeting one interesting person. And you're on your way to the next. But, but, but give me maybe the most interesting person you've ever met using whatever definition you want to use.
3: Mm. Well, there's, there's, there's no way to answer that. I can tell you, I mean, there's this lovely thing in a, I just did a podcast. And I, I had this, there's a line from Andy Warhol, um, which is, if everyone is not beautiful, then no one is. And I sort of feel like as a journalist, my job is to assume that everyone is interesting because if everyone is not interested, if everyone is not interesting, no one is. Um, So it's very hard for me to answer that question because I feel like if I don't find you interesting, that's my fault. Um, But that said, who have I enjoyed talking to? Uh, I mean, some people are just so kind of. I, you know, uh, there's a woman who used to run the Air Force. She stepped down about a year ago named Heather Wilson, who once came to, I once saw her come and speak at a thing I was at, and I've never had a feeling like I want her to be president. I keep saying this in the hopes that she'll listen and will run for president one day. I just thought she was like, my. I had a sense, she was interested in me because I thought, I have finally found someone who I think 75% of Americans could listen to and say, I'll vote for her. I've never met anyone who I thought that, um, the only other guy I've ever thought that 75% of Americans would vote for that person was a guy named Dave Calhoun, who weirdly is now the CEO of Boeing, who I met a couple times at some business thing. And he had, I had the same feeling with him. I had feeling like, you know what? I think, I think 75% of the country would vote for him, if not more. Heather Wilson, totally. If you met her, you'd be like, oh, okay and
4: why what is it about these people by the way we are authoring your next book in the in the process of this conversation uh, w- why w- what is it about those two people that you think would allow 75% of the country to rally around them heather
3: wilson was is uh gracious humble well spoken highly intelligent uh has served this country in a variety of different was in the Air Force, was uh, was a congresswoman, uh, has been a businessman, has been a scholar, uh, has been a university president, has a range of... Um, she's not some fancy uh, privileged blue blood from the East Coast. I don't know. She's just a kind of... She just struck me as someone who if she stood up and said something, people would listen to her and take her seriously. And she struck me as being someone who would be honest and uh, straightforward and would work hard. And I don't know, just always, she just seemed same thing with this guy, Dave Calhoun, who, you know, very different guy with very different interests, but just a kind of someone who communicated easily and beautifully authenticity. And integrity and intelligence. And that's a insanely powerful combination.
4: Man, I love hearing that. I hope she does hear that. I'm I'm why do you think she hasn't run for president before?
3: Who would run for president? <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> Who would wish that on their on their um, on their worst enemy? Yeah, it's um uh it's uh yeah, I mean you'd have, she'd have to be I think we'd have to do some serious encouragement to get out of those two people. My dream ticket is both of them, by the way, they're listening. And I don't even know or care whether they run as Democrats or Republicans. I, don't, I actually don't think it matters. Oh, I love that. All right, final question. Are you a romantic? Am I a romantic? A little bit, sure. I mean, I'm an Eng- I'm half English. That limits the extent to which I can describe myself as being a romantic, but... Are, are we going to see Malcolm Gladwell uh, married in the future? Uh... I would say there's a. I would say your odds are much better than um, than 50 uh, percent. Much, much better.
4: Oh, I kind of like hearing that. That's that's that's. Is is this is this new? It's
3: all, it? all I'm saying.
4: Okay, okay. I, I I like that. I like that. This is good. I don't know who's causing this, but I like it. I like it a lot. Um. Malcolm Gladwell, it's it's uh, I, I always enjoy uh, spending time with you. Always, always, always. Uh, thank you for joining us, um, and uh, I hope you hope you come back and uh, thank you, Carl. Do something like this with me again. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Carlos will be back soon with another thoughtful conversation with an incredible guest. In the meantime, please recommend us to your friends and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: To getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. So my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett.